Hey, everybody. Amna here. Quick programming note. We know that you expected to hear an interview with Heidi Byrick from the Southern Poverty Law Center today, but we changed our minds. We actually had a chance to sit down with writer-director John Ridley, the man behind Let It Fall, and we wanted to bring you this conversation while you still had a chance to see his work in theaters. So here it is, John Ridley. We're talking today, of course, because this amazing work that you've been uh, efforting for so long, Let It Fall, Los Angeles from 1982 to 1992, is out in theaters. It's airing on ABC. It is just a sweeping look at how we got to the uprising in Los Angeles, which has now become such an incredible part of our American narrative. And I want to talk certainly about the work, about how you came to tell that story, about why you came to tell it the way that you did. But one of the things we like to do here is also kind of figure out why people hold the views that they do, why you see the world the way that you do. So I want to hear about you and how you grew up and where you grew up. Well, I'm originally from a a small town in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Um, Just I grew up outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, very interesting circumstances. You know, I was just talking to my sister about it yesterday. Um, you know, we were one of few uh, people of color uh, where we grew up. Um, my mother was and still is a teacher. My father uh, is a doctor. He doesn't practice anymore. Um, very well respected in their community. Well respected because they were unafraid to voice their opinions and be involved. So because of that, you know, because of demographics, because of where we are, were, because people knew our, our family, um, our circumstances were very different. And we always felt our otherness, but we did not always have to deal with it, so to speak. Um, you know, we were, as one of few black people, we, we knew that. But also, you know, we, we did not, uh, you know, police officers where we grew up, they weren't just faceless individuals. You mm-hmm. know, they were our best friends parents and we had barbecues at their houses um, we um, you know because of our where our parents were you know people they, they knew who we were they, they, they recognized us in, in every way shape and form so again we, we always knew that we were different but we, we didn't necessarily have to deal with that um, I, I ended up arriving to New York in early to mid 1980s mm-hmm. and surprisingly that's where, I started to have to deal with really being black. So uh, a person from a, a small town, you go to New York, you think it's cosmopolitan city, major metropolitan city, world city. But that was the New York of Bernie Getz and Howard's Beach and Crown Heights. Um, when I left, it was the Tompkins Square riots. I mean, it was just you, you, I, I started to realize, well, there are neighborhoods that if I go to, there may be a problem. There are people who see me as nothing but a threat and and that had never happened in your life before. no you know there were you know in, in wisconsin again I, I had great experiences you look back on it and you you start to maybe think about you know quiet bigotry or soft bigotry do you do that you kind of reprocess some of oh, your childhood yeah i think now. you cannot help get but get to a point in your <laughs> life <laughs> when you, you look back it, on a lot second. of things and go you know why did that happen why did that but i had never I remember very clearly being in New York and being out late with two other friends, young black guys, and we're just kind of goofing around. And, and I mean, very mildly. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about being on the streets of New York, I mean, this was mild. And walking to my friend's car, I lived in, in, in Brooklyn at that time, and some police officers started checking us out. And we were on, I can tell you exactly where we were. We were about 82nd and 2nd. Okay. 82nd and 2nd, we were going all the way downtown. I'm going to take the bridge, go over to Brooklyn. 
And these officers made a U-turn, got behind us, and they followed us every block all the way down to the bridge. And moment by moment, you know, you just start to, you, you, you don't know what's going to happen. You know that they are, you know, choosing to mess with you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had done nothing wrong at all. You know, I had no reason. You know, if they pulled me over, you know, stand there, fine, run, run my... Uh, my driver's license, this and that. Um, but you, you, and I know there were people who grow up, you were my age at that time, deal with that every single day. Mm-hmm. But again, growing up in Wisconsin, never having a circumstance like that, you know, three black kids in a car, you know, New York, you know, just. What was that like? I mean, if you grow up the way that you do, and it's funny you say that, I think I feel like I had a similar experience where one of very few families of color, but you don't feel othered until you grow up and then you start to notice the way the world works and you think, wait a second, maybe that guy meant something else when he said that thing that one time. But what, at that moment, when you realize it's because of who you are and how you're perceived. Well, it was tough because it was also, you realize I was probably 21, 22 at that time. And that was also the first time that it happened. And you know there are other individuals who that's their experience, that's their primary experience dealing with the system or dealing with law enforcement officials. And then you start to realize, okay, well, that's how feelings get calcified. Because when it happens to you when you're 12, 13, 14, and that becomes your only experience, of course, by the time you're 21, 22, 23 years old, um, you look at law enforcement very differently. Mm -hmm. And that's equally unfortunate. So it was difficult for it to happen the first time, but I really was aware of the fact that, um, you know, when my parents were growing up, they, you know, certainly had decent experiences, but just by dint of being black people Mm -hmm. at that time in their lives, you know, they they were experiencing things completely different than the way I was experiencing things. And of course, every generation, you want experiences to get better. But, you know, I, I, I don't want my sons to ever have a negative experience with law enforcement. I want them to respect people in law enforcement. I also want people in law enforcement to respect them. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, because there are difficult circumstances that happen, um, you want people to understand that when they do happen, they're not necessarily random. They're not just perchance um, that there are systemic issues Mm -hmm. that are going on. And we've got to, you know, we can't wait till it happens to us or me or um, if it if it's something that's happening in a different community, you know, if people are getting pulled off an airplane or something to go, oh, well, you know, that's pretty bad, but that ain't me. Right. So I can't really worry about that. Um, circumstances are real. When things that are happening, um, you know, even now, you know, we talk about the Rodney King riots and uh, whether a Rodney King uprising at that time, something being caught on tape was just not the norm. Right. Now things are getting caught on tape. And even though it seems like, okay, maybe it's happening every day, mm-hmm. if, if it's being caught, it's happening more than just every day. Right. You know, it's happening every moment. They're not just casual incidents. And we yeah. can never become immune to the fact that, okay, well, with, it's on Twitter 24 hours a day. You know, I may have my issues with social media. But if nothing else, it should remind us that, look, if this is happening to this one individual, 
There are 10 other people we didn't see it happen to. How did that realization, as a young man, you're starting your career, you're figuring out your path, you're starting to see yourself in relation to the rest of the world in a different way, how did that inform how you set your path moving forward, what you decided to do, how you decided to tell the stories and do the work you wanted to do? I think that even still was sort of a long arc. Yeah. You know, in the early days of my career, you know, as, as a young person, you know, it was still very focused on me and my experiences. Certainly, I was aware very, very early on that no matter what stories that I wanted to tell, mm -hmm. and a lot of them were more pure entertainment, that as then, not young anymore, but as a young black guy, um, you know, there were, there were going to be barriers. There were going to be, uh, I was not going to have the opportunities that other individuals had. Uh, but at the same time, and I, a lot of this is just really about the way I was raised, about my parents, um, things that they instilled in me. It didn't matter. You know, I never thought that I would not be able to accomplish the things that I wanted to accomplish. Now, I've, I've there have been rewards that I've had that you don't have control over. Mm -hmm. And to this day, right now, as I sit with you, I still can't believe some of the blessings that I've had. But in terms of writing the things that I wanted to write, tell the stories that I wanted to tell, have some impact on, on communities, um, to be able to uh, engage people in the public space, mm -hmm. I just never considered that that was not going to happen. For so many people who've come into contact with your work recently and know there's a lot of there's a lot of heavy stuff in there. You tackle yeah. some of the big stuff. They may not know early on. You were in comedy. Yes. You were writing for Fresh Prince and for Martin yeah. and all these fabulous sitcoms that helped kind of yeah. define that era. What you're you're the son of a teacher and a doctor. Yeah. What made you want to go into entertainment in the first place? I, <laughs> I cannot say particularly other than moments where I sat in a movie theater and was just transported and moved and moved by stories, all kinds of stories. Mm. Um, it just why, why, why does one become a teacher or a doctor or a firefighter or, or you know an auto mechanic? There's something about working on an engine that just gives you a feeling like no other. There's something about um, I, my wife's, some of her cousins are firefighters and they, they wouldn't do anything differently. You know, they show us helmets that they keep that, you know, are like, oh, this one was partially melted in the fire. The building was coming down. You're like, why would you do that? Because, you know, there, there's something about what you do or, or the service that you do that is just special. I, I don't think I appreciated the power and the impact of narrative completely when I was a younger person. I think over time, you know, you asked me about, you know, telling these stories and sharing these yeah. things. When I was younger, you know, you just, you, I wanted to be funny or I wanted to right. write for people who were funny. Um, I wanted to be involved in film and entertainment. It was just an exciting um, business. I, I think people don't quite understand how much work goes into a half-hour comedy and very little of it is fun in the moment. You know, it's very, very stressful, but yeah. when people say, oh, I saw that show and I loved it. Oh, Will Smith is so funny. Martin was great. You know, that's where the enjoyment comes from. You know, when you're with a live audience and they're responding to jokes that you've written or responding to what the actors are doing, that's yeah. a lot of fun. But, um, you know. Did you have people you looked up to at the time? Did you see, like, other writers or comedians or performers you said that? There were certainly comedians I looked up to, but it was very, you know, when you get into the business and you realize, wow, there really are very few 
black people at that time or people of color involved or involved in decision-making positions, mm-hmm. involved in executive decisions, involved in directing, um, that was kind of eye-opening because you assumed, you know, the numbers were, were going to be a little bad. You know, they weren't going to be in your favor, but it was, you know, they were just, there was very little representation. It's very stark. Very little. And unfortunately, you know, there remains, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. very little representation. Has it gotten better, do you think? No, it has not gotten better. I mean, I, and I, I say that you know, not based on opinion, on, on fact, on numbers. Um, even though we're living in a space where there has been this explosion of filmed entertainment in terms of television, streaming, cable, there's something like, you know, by people's count, between 300 and 450 scripted shows on the air. Right. And every one of those shows has multiple directors, multiple writers, multiple executives involved. But the numbers in terms of um, blacks, people of color, women, um, people who are essentially not straight white males who are in critical positions, right. um, that is just, it is has truly not changed. It has remained flat. So more and more and more television uh, but those individuals, women, people of color, traditionally disenfranchised individuals, are still not involved. And in terms of in front of the camera, you know, people look at this last year at the Oscars and was great, was really represented, representative and reflective, which is very important. But you start to go in other categories, other spaces, and it's still not representative. And I think it's very important, you know, people talk about diversity. And I really actually don't like that word being used because women, people of color, people of other backgrounds, you know, we're in the majority. And it's actually straight white males. When you see a straight white male, that's diversity. And people say, well, it's just a word. What what does it matter? But I think it's very important to understand we've got to be reflective of the environment that we live in. And if, you know, people... You know, in the decision-making processes, if you go, okay, well, you know what? If we're talking about diversity, you know, you are actually overrepresented. Mm-hmm. You know, how does that make you feel? And how does that make you think? And if we really are talking about being reflective, then it's a whole other conversation. I think it's very important to approach it in that regard and look at the work we're doing and saying, okay, is this actually really reflective of the environment we're working in and not diversity in the sense of, okay, well, we have one of those and one of them. So, hey, look. We're diverse. Check the boxes. Check the boxes. We're all good. Let's go. Let's film it. Um, it's hard to believe in so many ways. It's been 25 years yeah. since since the, the L.A. riots and the uprising. And um, there's a number of works coming out right now, yeah. sort of looking back and reflecting on it in a different way. Just on a personal level, where, where were you? when it was actually happening? How were you I was, processing I it? was in Los Angeles. I was living in the Fairfax district, mm-hmm. which is not particularly close to where the initial incidents occurred, mm-hmm. which was in an area that was, um, is no longer called South Central, was South Central Los Angeles. Um, I was not at home when the verdicts were read. Um, I believe I heard the news on my car. What I remember about the first day, as night was approaching, um, I was in a uh, large supermarket, uh, uh, Ralph's, I believe it was, Mm -hmm. 
but it was, you know, just think of your neighborhood large supermarket. That's where we were. And we were removed. But you could smell the smoke. I mean, you could smell it to the point where it was, um, you know, you, you, you knew that this was not an isolated incident. And this was growing. But at that time, still thinking, okay, you know, if you've not been to Los Angeles, this is, you know, this city, it is spread out like no other city. And, you know, 10 miles is, you know, a half hour away. You know, 15 miles is 45 minutes away. So when things happen in different neighborhoods, you know, you, you can sense it, you can feel it. But on that first day, it was still, okay, wow, this is bad. But boy, that, you know, even at that time, people had come to believe that South Central was a very particular neighborhood. The way we thought of Westwood is very particular. Beverly Hills is, right. you know, all of these, it's, it's essentially part of the same city, but they all have their own vibe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the that the outrage of the verdict, the um, the sense of shock, dismay, there were, there were few people in Los Angeles who did not feel that, but a lot of people felt like, okay, yeah, well, boy, this is bad, but man, okay, that, that – it, it's affecting a group of individuals in a very particular way. Mm-hmm. And by the second day, and as that second night approached, and we began to realize, people began to realize that um, law enforcement, the system, the administration, either did not have the capacity or did not have the desire to, you know, on the first day, I think people believe, well, the law enforcement doesn't have the desire to contain this. Right. Fine. These individuals, they want to burn their neighborhood, you know, let it burn. Now, the second day, there was the feeling people no longer had the capacity to contain this. And it was beginning to affect many communities in many different ways, um, whether it was people who felt outraged, whether it was people who felt like um, it was an opportunity, whether it were people who were just knuckleheads and just getting in on it. Uh, that's where, you know, after years of people trying to engage in the system – and warn people and try to intervene, at that point, um, this cascade effect was starting to reach everybody. And there was somebody in our documentary who says, you know, at that point, everybody needs to feel the same pain. Everybody needs to feel the same hurt. And you start to realize, oh, yeah, if we don't engage, if we really don't problem solve, you can walk around feeling like, well, you know, that's bad, but that's happening with those folks. That's unfortunate, but that's them over there. Um, When distress arrives to us, you know, it doesn't segregate us and them anymore. Right. Um, when um, hurt happens, when distress happens, uh, when when people feel like they have no other recourse but to pour into the streets, it can affect everybody. And if we wait to that point to problem solve, it is far too late. What was it on a personal level for you, though? You're there. You're yeah. in Los Angeles. You are a black man in Los Angeles watching black, largely black communities go through absolute hell in response to something that was ostensibly along racial lines as well. Yeah. How, how do you process that? It was very difficult for me because I was aware, you know, my circumstances are different. Yeah. As a as a black person, I know how I felt about the assault itself. I know how I felt about the verdict itself. But as a person and who grew up in different circumstances, I also knew how I felt about seeing random individuals, you know, pulled from their cars, assaulted, um, but then also knowing that largely what was happening and where these fires were burning, uh, I'm certainly not saying that that rage should be focused on some other community, but looking at it and going, okay, well, 
you know, people's homes who are clearly black people, their businesses who are clearly probably largely black owned. And certainly there were, you know, businesses that were Korean owned that were being targeted and this and that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, they were still affecting the black community Mm -hmm. because those services were disappearing. Um, Shops were disappearing. It wasn't like you could, hey, this is bad, but I'm going to, fine, I'll drive to the valley and get my food and get diapers and things like that. You know, I I had a a real mix of emotions. The pain was there. The disbelief was there. um, Anger was there, but not random anger. Um, and certainly not anger to the point that I wanted to see anybody's business burned down. But you're seeing all of these things happening, and it's all it, – it truly is getting out of control. This is not about individuals saying, okay, you know what? We are going to be heard, and we're going to be heard, whether it's going through the streets or assembling at a church or anything like that. It's people who said, you know what? We've tried to be heard. We don't care anymore. As someone, again, in our, our uh, documentary says at that point – the compassion line was closed, and I thought that was an amazingly, not simplistic, but simple way of saying it, w- it, was, it was even less about rage or anger or hatred, but I no longer have compassion. I no longer have the ability to care about somebody else's circumstances, and a lot of people, I don't care. That's your business. I don't care. You're caught up in this. I don't care. And, you know, sometimes maybe the opposite of anger is just disregard, you know? There's something uniquely empathetic about so much of you, certainly in Let It Fall, but also across American crime and guerrilla, you have this wealth of empathy that somehow translates across all the people in, whether they're meant to be, you know, protagonists or antagonists, or I don't, you're not telling people how to feel about them, but there's a complication behind everybody featured in your stories. And particularly in something like this, which for so long was talked about with a sort of here are the perpetrators, here are the victims, yeah. here's the black, here's the white, not just racial lines, but sort of in the storytelling. But I think even in the storytelling, a yeah. lot of times, you know, look, clearly the black community was, you know, had been disproportionately affected by a lot of the uh, ways that the, you know, the, the police or the administration, even mm-hmm. though Mayor Bradley, a black man, was mayor at that time, you know, how city services were dispensed, um, how interactions um, were um, framed. Sure. But race is not a binary thing. It, it isn't just black and white. And in our story, we really point out that we're talking about black communities, uh, Korean American community, Japanese American community, Hispanic communities that were all caught up in the circumstances that led to this uprising. Mm-hmm. So at that point, uh, you know, race was not binary. In the here and now, it, it's not binary. And I think that one of the things that sets apart the work that we do when, I, when we talk about American crime or let it fall a gorilla is saying that um, the issues that we face are broad-based. Mm-hmm. You know, as a black man, you know, I think of, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, talked about are particular grievances as black people in America. Mm-hmm. And they are particular. They're very particular. But one of the issues becomes when we cannot or do not have a space or a tolerance for other people's issues. This is not about comparing tragedies or saying that, you know, well, we went through this and it is particular and we need to deal with that. But in dealing with that, I have no interest in your issues or your background or what you're dealing with. I think that's where it becomes really, really problematic. And where a story like Let It Fall, um, I think why people have responded to it in such an emotional way is that we start with a collection of individuals, um, black, white, 
uh, Asian, Hispanic, and we don't understand quite what their story is. Mm -hmm. And it's just people recalling their circumstances, recalling moments from their family lives. And then minute by minute in the story, we start to understand, oh, these aren't just random individuals. Um, These folks, their stories are interwoven. They're interconnected. um, They are witnesses or participants in moments that change the course of history in Los Angeles and, by extension, truly um, interactions across this country. And I think what has hit people is they start to understand and realize, you know, in all kinds of cities and all kinds of spaces, that person that I'm sitting next to on the subway or across on the street, um, that may be the least of our interactions. It may be the most of our interactions, but we do have a connection. And their story, their narrative is as valid as my story, my narrative, my issues. Um, And we've truly got to start looking at people as people. And I'm very proud of the fact that we were able to do that in American Crime. We're able to do that in Guerrilla. And certainly uh, in a fact-based story uh, like Let It Fall, where it's less about our opinions. Mm -hmm. I say ours, the producers, um, Lincoln Square Production, ABC. Um, less about our opinions and more about building an apparatus for delivering empathy. Where does that empathy come from in you, that capacity for compassion? Was that just something your your mother and father taught you your whole life? Is that I think you it's something time? that's come with age. You know, I've been very fortunate to have careers within my career. Mm-hmm. And I did go through a span of time where a lot of the work that I did, it was very opinion-oriented and, and, and on purpose, on purpose because of myself and also because of the spaces that I was working in. But over time, I mean, look, you, you, one cannot sit with individuals like the Tuskegee Airmen and have them share their story with you and not go, okay, well, this needs to be a whole lot less about me and more about honoring their service. Mm-hmm. One cannot spend four years working with Solomon Northrop's uh, narrative, 12 Years a Slave, mm-hmm. and not realize that this is so much less about me and this story, as powerful it is, still only represents one experience in the totality of the black experience in America. So it, it was just, I think, and even over the last five years, you know, I think my, my parents did an amazing job of representing a level of selflessness, you know, just as people mm-hmm. that, you know, didn't quite land with me as being instructional as a, as a young person. What do you mean but, by that? Well, you know, look, you, Anybody, parents, teachers, individuals, other people, you can sit all day long with with anybody. But I'm talking about young folks now and say, look, you should aspire to this. You should aspire to listening more than you talk. You should aspire to being patient. You should aspire to caring about other people's circumstances. Um, You know, we we can teach that, teach that, teach that all day long. But at some point, it's less about teaching, more about witnessing. And one day... You know, for whatever reason, because of the work that you're doing, because you have kids yourself, because you just grow up and you get tired of, you know, I'll be honest, it comes a point where I go, you know, boy, I I talk about me a lot. Um, And that's exciting at some point. And there really does come a point where you go, you know what, I'm done with that. Um, This person's story is way more interesting than what I was talking about. Mm Um, there's still, look, I'm not pretending I don't have opinions, you know, to pick this subject matter, to write these kinds of stories, 
to choose to go into these spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's opinion every step of the way. Yeah, and emotion. And opinion, emotion, yeah. belief, yeah. representations of my upbringing, my experiences. Right. But within that as well, trying to create a space where other people's stories, other people's experiences, things that I learned, people who want to share their stories with me, mm-hmm. um, feel as though that space will be honored. Their stories will be treated with dignity and with respect. And also, you know, again, when, when we screened let it fall for the first time. You know, we had people who had not spoken about these events ever. People from different backgrounds, different communities, community individuals, police officers. Um, It's hard enough, whatever your work is, screening it the first time because people are going to react how they're going to react. It's also very hard screening it for people who trusted you with their story Mm -hmm. and they're seeing it for the very first time. It is even more difficult when you're taking individuals who have reason to be suspect both of what you're doing and how other people are going to perceive that. Sure. Because over years they've been taught to, you know, don't trust this group, this group. They have their agenda already in place. Right. So imagine all of those elements going into your first screening. But being able to walk away with people who trusted you, people who believed in you, um, people who had every reason in the world not share their story, to see that not only were their stories honored and valued, but there was equal honoring in other people, other individuals, and that there was this connectivity. And I think all of us felt very, very proud in that moment. But this space that I've arrived to, it really was, you know, it was a maturation. It was a maturation, not just of myself, but mm-hmm. but in witnessing what other people had done, what other people had sacrificed, just plain growing up as a person. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy and thankful that, uh, for whatever reason, people still consider me vital enough that, that um, um, you know, look, to, to have a company like ABC, to have a company like the Disney Company, when they are doing such amazing entertainment in so many spaces, to be able to say, you know what, there's a value in this story that is different from um, a, a, a pure profit drive. Um, it's they, unique and important. It is enough. unique in its, it's own worth way. Telling, There's right? an assessment in its own regard, and I cannot be thankful enough to this 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 amazing company to say not just to me, to other people as well, that if your story or the stories you want to present have a value, let us figure out what that value is, and we'll find a way to share it. You got so many people from so many different angles to participate in this, but mm-hmm. at the heart of it are those four officers who were charged yeah. and acquitted and decided not to participate. Yeah. Were, you, were you in touch with them? Did you, did you get to talk we to did, them? We and, did, and we had um, producers and individuals, and in particular people with law enforcement background, yeah. who reached out to these officers. And we had different levels of engagement with the four of them. Some of them... Um, we're not interested in telling their story whatsoever. Some of them did have preliminary engagements with us and wanted to know what we were doing and why we were doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very disappointed that they chose not to share their story because we do have other people who, um, in different spaces, certainly... Um, from the law enforcement angle. From right? law enforcement, yeah. but also from community who... Yeah. Um, you know, why do you think they didn't want to participate? Well, you know, some of them were very clear. They, they, a, they just didn't want to talk about it. We're not interested. Some people felt as though um, they'd spent the last 25 years trying to move away from this story. Mm-hmm. And if they talked um, in the modern space um, with social media, that they were just going to be 
excoriated publicly again and again and again, rightly right. or wrongly. Um, our desire in telling this these stories was not to exonerate anyone, but at the same time, we didn't want to indict people. We did not want to simply have straw men or straw women who were set up to, to be knocked down. Um, I think these gentlemen, uh, however I may feel about what happened on that night mm-hmm. or what happened in the courtrooms, that there was more to their story and there was more to them. And for all of these individuals, and we do have some law enforcement officials represented in this story that made some very difficult decisions, um, some people from the community that made some, um, whose actions were driven from a very particular passion. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to represent them in their fullness as human beings. Um, what we tried to express to these officers that we were not just going to ask you about that night. We were not just going to ask you about the actions at that moment. Right. But try to get a sense of who you were, try to get context for what happened that night, and then also try to understand what that meant going forward. So um, they chose not to engage. I get it. I understand it. Um, I wish that they had had. But I do have an appreciation for people from these various communities who chose to engage and chose to share their stories and um, understood that uh, they it was up to them mm-hmm. to represent who they were and the decisions that they made and how it affected them in the long term. And if they were willing to share that, we would do everything we could to do that without bias. In the telling of the story, you so completely, I mean, it starts at 1982 yeah. to get up to that point. And uh there's almost an inevitability to what ended up happening yeah. and the level of discru- destruction and the, and the way things came about. Yeah. And I wonder, uh, A, if you think it was inevitable, and B, if you look around now and see other sort of pockets of ine- inevitability yeah. where similar things could happen. I, You know, sadly, I do think it was inevitable, and I think that's part of the title. You know, people let this fall yeah. um, because, again— the Rodney King uprisings, you know, it, as we say in the story, you know, it didn't start with Rodney King. It, it was not one night. It was not one assault. It was not just one verdict in Simi Valley. Um, people did try to engage with the system. People did try to let those in authority know that there were problems. Um, there were great times in L.A. In 1984 with the Olympics, with Mayor Bradley, where things felt really, really good. Mm-hmm. But as then um, – what we need to be mindful of now, to your question, is because my circumstances may be good, because um, a lot of people may be enjoying good times, that doesn't mean that there are not pressure points, there aren't issues in other communities or things that people are dealing with in the here and now that may not jump off next week or next month or next, next year, but they can happen again. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there are similarities in and among Los Angeles, Ferguson, Baltimore. There are systemic issues. I do think with all of those spaces – they deserve and the people involved deserve you know, singular examinations. We can't just go, well, Los Angeles is Baltimore mm-hmm. and uh, Baltimore is another Ferguson. The circumstances are unique. The circumstances are unique. Yeah, the stories are unique. The stories are unique. The s- systemic issues, you know, those are pervasive and those are happening. Uh, but but do you can't... worry there could be similar kinds of oh, level I... of riots or uprisings? And Absolutely. You, that, yeah. you know, look, whether – how the scope and scale, how big they are, yeah. how pervasive they are, you know, again, you know, Los Angeles is a city, how it was policed. And I don't even mean, I mean the psychology of it, just the numbers, the demographics, uh, what what the capacities were. 
um, that's very, very different. It was very, very singular. So I have no doubt in terms of interactions, in terms of um, what happens in communities, how we look at each other, you know, that we know. I mean, we just know that there are issues, whether that results in a large-scale uprising, whether it results in a few individuals spilling out on the streets, mm-hmm. whether that is a, a public demonstration where police and citizenry, citizenry are going out together to say, look, there's an issue and we got to deal with it, or whether it's just people who feel like they're fed up. You know, how it happens, what the results are, that I can't predict, but I'm absolutely sure that there are stress points, that there are people who feel like they're being marginalized, they're not being listened to somewhere right now, and they are going to want recourse. Um, we need to make sure that that recourse is positive. Uh, it's real engagement because otherwise, you know, when, when you take away people's voices, when you take away um, their ability to be heard, they will make themselves heard in any way that they feel is appropriate. John Ridley, the man behind Let It Fall, Los Angeles, 1982 to 1992. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Nawaz. Thanks for listening.